This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by New Relic and Epsigon. This week, I recap AWS reInvent 2020 with the help of eight amazing AWS heroes. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 86. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, we have an absolutely amazing episode for you. Reinvent 2020 is finally done. We're in February of 2021, and unless they decide to maybe stick another week of videos in, Reinvent 2020 is finally done. So I figured why not do an episode where we can get the best input and the best insights from some of the most amazing people in Serverless. So today, I have eight AWS heroes with me, and we are going to talk about all the amazing things that happened at reInvent 2020. So I'm just going to go quickly around the horn here and, and introduce everybody. So first up is AWS serverless hero, independent consultant, developer advocate at Lumigo, host of the Real World Serverless podcast, the burning monk himself, Mr. Yen Trey. Hey, guys. All right, next we have an AWS community hero. He's the technical evangelist at Atlassian and the guy who once helped me stalk Werner Vogels just so we could get a photo with him, Mr. Sirhat John. Hey, folks, happy to be here. And next is another AWS serverless hero. He's the CTO of Nero Experience, co-founder and co-organizer of just about every serverless community event in Italy, the Italian stallion of serverless, Mr. Luca Bianchi. Hello. All right, next we are joined by yet another AWS serverless hero. He's also the CTO at Epsigon and way too smart for his own good, the man they call Mr. Observability, Ron Ribbonzaft. Hey, everyone. All right, moving on, we have another AWS serverless hero. He's the VP of engineering at Theodo, editor of Serverless Transformation, and an excellent Nashville, Tennessee drinking buddy, Ben Ellerby. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me. All right, next up, another AWS serverless hero. She is the Alliances and Ecosystem Director at Stackery, a co-organizer of Serverless Days Virtual and several other serverless community events. My good friend, the amazing Farrah Campbell. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. All right, next we have an AWS serverless hero and senior engineering manager at the Lego Group. He's a serverless speaker, an amazing writer, and all-around awesome guy, Mr. Sheen Brizzles. Hey, everyone. Thank you, Jeremy. And finally, we have an AWS machine learning hero to round out the panel. She's a solutions engineer at Liberty IT and a co-conspirator in the Werner stalking incident with Sirhat and me, the absolutely brilliant Jillian Armstrong. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be here. All right. So we have eight amazing people right now, all kinds of knowledge that they can drop. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through each person. I'm going to just give you the floor. I want you to introduce something interesting from AWS, whether uh, AWS reInvent, whether it was an announcement um, or something that happened. Uh, just tell me about it. So let's start with uh, let's start with Yen. What's your what's your favorite thing that happened at reInvent? Yeah, sure. I think that probably the biggest one, the, the biggest announcement event for me was the Aurora Serverless V2, uh, which uh, really is a bit of a marvel when it comes to engineering excellence. Uh, some of the things you can do with uh, serverless, uh, Aurora Serverless V2 in terms of the instance scaling and really fine step, fine grain steps uh, of how quickly and how much you scale up uh, solves a lot of problems that uh, Aurora Serverless V1 had that people actually right. want to use in production. 
and the things just uh, takes forever to scale up and uh, you you go in the big double uh, double uh, increase in size which uh, uh, in terms of a uh, cost is probably not the most uh, I guess the you know pay as you go because you end up doubling your costs straight straight away. Right. Um, so I'm quite excited about uh, what they're gonna do once uh, it goes uh, GA on the Aurora Serverless V2. Yeah. And what do you think? Uh, what do you think about the cost aspect of that? Because that was one of the things where you look at those ACUs and they've actually doubled um, the cost of those. But do you think mm -hmm. that just the benefit of of having all those features and how quickly that's going to scale? I mean, because it does it scales instantaneously. Um, do you think that's going to be a, a good trade off from a from a sort of a financial standpoint? Um, I think you, I guess so. Uh, we still have to see what happens uh, in uh, once people start using it in production. But uh, because of the fact that uh, they've uh, reduced uh, how the guess the unit that you scale up by, because before you have to scale from what four to eight to sixteen to thirty-two, uh, and that means uh, you know you end up spending a lot of money on um, ACU that you're not going to be using because it's just right. over that you know eight, uh, eight ACU um, and you just need eight point five, but you end right. up with sixteen. And the fact that it takes longer for them to scale down also means that you end up paying for uh, overhead that you don't need for longer as well. Uh, so besides all the extra features you get, uh, the fact that it's more expensive per ACU doesn't necessarily mean that you end up paying more uh, overall because you cut down a lot of the waste that you have. Um, so I guess it's still waiting. You know, we still have to see in production what actually transpires. Uh, but given the given the fact that it's now can scale a lot faster, which unlocks use cases that just you know you couldn't do before. Uh, before right. it just takes too long to scale up, and uh, some of the extra features they talk about in terms of what's it? What's it? I've got some notes here. Um, some extra features like. Uh, Right. So there's some stuff that was missing before, like a global database, the IAM right. off and the Lambda, uh, Lambda triggers. So all of those now have become available in the Aurora serverless V2 where they were missing on the V1. So between that and the fact that you've, you know, you cut out a lot of your, your, uh, your, your waste, I suspect yeah. that it's going to make a lot more financial sense to go to V2 going forward. I'm curious, but. I'm curious, by the way, why it's named V2 and not just, hey, we've updated the Aurora and it's now better. Like, it's the first time I've seen that they nickname it V2. Is it, is it something that happens behind or like, what's the or, reason? Or maybe Aurora the... truly serverless or something like this. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's because that is uh, is a complete set of uh, a complete new offering, and the fact that you can use uh, V1 and V2 side by side, so it's not a complete replacement of uh, Aurora serverless, but it's a new. Um, new imagining of how Aurora serverless uh, should work, which is why it's V2. And you can actually have the same cluster with both V1 and V2. I'm not sure how that's actually, how well that's going to work in production in terms of uh, predictability and everything else. Like, okay, some stuff will work with the new features that land the triggers uh, and some won't. I'm not sure how that actually right. plays out in, you know, in, the, in the real world. Uh, but at least you have that option of uh, running you know, them two, uh, the, the two versions side by side, which might make migration a bit easier so that you can gradually move stuff over as opposed to you know, stop one day at a downtime and then bring up a new you know, V2 and then uh, see what happens. Right. And thinking about some of those use cases, like anybody have any uh, thoughts on maybe, you know, when people could say, hey, with this, with this level of scalability now, what use cases could I maybe start migrating to serverless that I couldn't before? I would think that the uh, slowest, sorry, the lowest uh, scales would really fit the Aurora serverless because honestly, you don't care about much as the infrastructure, and you do care for every bit that you're paying, and you do care about you know the uh, instantaneous uh, scalability. 
Uh, so I think for the lower scales, it makes sense for the, on the other end, the more, you know, bigger scales, you know, billions or hundreds of billions of uh, requests arose every day. Uh, it's something that probably serverless wouldn't be the best fit for. Um, that's my, my opinion. Yeah, I think you have to be factoring into account uh, how much engineering expertise you have uh, to actually do that yourself. Because uh, one thing that's always gets gets left on the table is, uh, well, if I have to hire somebody to do this for me to run on containers, that's going to cost me twenty grand a month. How much am I actually saving uh, if I save you know, ten grand a month on the AWS cost and spend double that on the staffing cost? Um, so again, if you've got expertise already, then yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But if you have the higher expertise from externally, um, then you have to factor into account the total cost of ownership, not just the cost of your AWS bill. The other question is uh, like, when should I choose RDS and when should I choose Aurora uh, now? Except, yeah, for, sure. except for if I want like a, an Oracle database or something, which is a, I know, traditionally old, but for my SQL or Postgres, why, why should I even bother RDS anymore? It's a good question. Does anybody have an answer to that? <laughs> I mean, Aurora, uh, Aurora does give you some really amazing features uh, in, uh, that you have to build yourself, which are quite hard to configure and set up and all of that. Things like a global database, the fact that you've got Lambda triggers, you've got uh, uh, IEM authentication, uh, which I still have a problem with that because you still need to have a root access. Uh, you still have a need to have a root user. So you have to still have that security overhead of having to maintain that uh, and uh, deal with that. So, um, but still, you know, you've got a bunch of uh, uh, built-in features that Aurora has uh, over just, uh, I guess, uh, normal RDS, what do you call it? <laughs> just a non-Aurora RDS. <laughs> Right, um, and Aurora has also got some pretty crazy performance. Uh, the last time I uh, I saw some uh, benchmarks that you can, you know, someone's able to get up to something like you know, ten thousand ops uh, um, ops per second or something like that on the on the Aurora, which is you know quite significant. Uh, it's you know, it's not easy to get to that level of throughput uh, on the RDS. Right, I think if if you if you look at uh, from a different angle. Um, so when when serverless Aurora v2 becomes uh, popular it will give an extra option uh, to dynamo db for those who are more towards a sql and there are use cases now they just stuff everything in dynamo because that is the you know the go-to option they have with the v2 that will kind of get loosened up and i mean I mean, earlier this week, an engineer came to me with a design where uh, she wanted to keep a certain audit uh, data in DynamoDB. But when I looked at the query that she had to perform on the on the data, I knew that it's too much for DynamoDB. Right. So, you know, these sort of situation, not necessarily, you know, millions or billions of, you know, transactions and things, but even that sort of, you know, the flexibility and the ease of using uh, without compromising the performance. So those aspects will come into play when, you know, eventually when it becomes popular. Yeah, and I love I love using RDS or even Aurora Serverless is one of the major ways that I've used it recently is just to store data off of streams from DynamoDB as a way that I could query it. Um, but it was more for the admin side of things and less for, um, you know, less for sort of a front end use case. But um, but yeah, I think that's a I think that's a super interesting sort of uh, you know thing that you can do is say, look, if I can if I can mix and match those two databases together, get the operational performance and that stability of Dynamo, but then also be able to you know expand my query capabilities with something like you know Postgres or MySQL. I think that's an interesting uh, interesting way yeah. to do it.
especially um, and I think with the glue elastic views which came out of reInvent right. as well we'll be able to have the same data replicated across multiple data stores I've not played with it around I've not played around with it yet but I think we'll be able to have application data from DynamoDB replicated to relational databases or other DynamoDB databases but we'll be able to have data scientists interacting with those relational databases directly at the moment I'm particularly using S3 as a sort of serverless data lake and then using Athena to query on top of that but it's nowhere near as powerful as a data scientist having direct access to a relational database. Right, right. Uh, there's also the fact that uh, you can uh, you can stream stuff from DynamDB streams uh, to Elasticsearch as well, which is a such a common use case. Right. I literally built it like three times in the last six months for different projects, <laughs> and uh, it's just so much easier if I can just uh, you know point this uh, Elastic uh, Elastic View I forgot what they call it now uh, to between uh, between DynamDB and the Elasticsearch. That'd be awesome. Yeah, the problem with Elasticsearch is that it's not serverless yet, right? So yep. <laughs> we're still managing <laughs> we're still managing those clusters, and 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 I mean, you know, ninety nine percent of it's done for you, but you still have to sort of think about it. So, any other thoughts on um, Aurora Serverless V two? Um, that's one thing that's worth mentioning is that uh, at least right now, uh, before GA, they still don't have the uh, data API yet, uh, which mm. means uh, you know, from a serverless point of view, is. Uh, uh, you still have to worry about the man, uh, managing socket connection, pooling, and all of that, and maybe bringing in a uh, database proxy. But I imagine by the time they go GA, they should have added uh, support for data API because that was quite a big game changer for Aurora Serverless. Right, definitely. All right, um, let's move on. Let's go to Luca. What was your uh, what's your favorite reInvent announcement? Yeah, my favorite announcement is the container image format support for Lambda because mm. this is something that was uh, very uh, game-changing for machine learning practitioners but also for a number of use cases because uh, now we have the possibility to uh, drop and define all the dependencies of a Lambda in a specific file format for the image that can be deployed on the Lambda. It is mm -hmm. not a direct support for container images, so you cannot deploy containers, but you can describe in the same format all everything that you want to be packaged inside with your Lambda. And it is great. Uh, it is great because it makes you able to go over a lot of constraints. It makes you able to uh, implement tree shaking or dependency removing. And so you can optimize also the, the package that is deployed to the Lambda. And it's something that you could have, could have done before, but uh, you needed uh, some kind of serverless specific plugin or uh, to da, uh, do this by yourself using CDK or whatever. And it, it was not straightforward. Right now, it's completely direct and you have, can just specify the format. The other thing that is very important is that uh, choosing a standard format, uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, Kubernetes of, of container DevOps engineer that now can bring their workloads to Lambda using mm. exactly the same format. Not every uh, feature of the language of the format is supported. Uh, for example, you cannot open other connection to our ports to other uh, services 
or manage connection within the uh, the image within the container. But the sub the subset which is supported is uh, is something which is really great because you can run uh, even uh, runtime uh, scripts on the on the packaging machine when you are building the package. Moreover, the container support and all everything that you can package to make your image working. And I'm referring about uh, the Lambda runtime environment that can be packaged on the on the container makes you able to do two things. The first one is that you can choose your own image format. So you can start from any kind of uh, available Docker image. You can right. choose Ubuntu, you can choose uh, Red Hat, you can choose Fedora or whatever uh, kind of image. And you can uh, package, you can start from, say, a Python image, so an image which has already a different kind of the Python environment, uh, Python runtime bundle with that, or uh, say some kind of uh, Linux based utilities such as Image Magic or FFmpeg or whatsoever. So you can choose your base image and you can bundle within that your uh, runtime environment client, which has been released open source. So you can also uh, use that feature to test locally your development works, uh, work cycle, which is great because you right. can run a Docker, your Docker on your machine, uh, deploying that image, uh, make Lambda calls to that runtime environment and then test even before pushing that to the cloud. Yeah. No, and I, I think that's a, a, a good distinction too, that it's a packaging format. You're not actually running a container um, in, you know, in the Lambda function itself. But um, yeah, I mean, that opens up a, a whole bunch of, I think, um, a whole bunch of tooling options. So has anybody else seen, you know, some some feedback on on sort of how this helps, you know, people that have existing workflows start using serverless? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think that Jillian has some nice use cases because we have discussed about them before. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm mainly looking at that because um, because we're doing machine learning. Obviously, the models are quite vague. Shoving right. them into traditional lambda is not yeah. gonna not gonna work out for you. So having the extra space is really nice. And it's definitely allowing us to do a bit of experimentation and see what we can do. Uh, the system I'm working on, it's got lots of different data extraction. So we need different models at different times. We don't want them all running, like just burning cycles when they're not right. being used because some of them will be used very infrequently. So being able to put those in a Lambda is a massive advantage. But then... I do have like some concerns around the, the containerized lambdas that you're going to see companies come in and the first time anyone uses a lambda, it's in a container and then mm -hmm. they never come out of the container instead of saying, well, if I can build this lambda without the container, I'll start there right. and only move into a container when the use case doesn't work for just a straightforward, simple lambda where you get a lot more just done for you. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can be right for some companies, but. I'm wondering if people might, you know, come from their container world, go into the container lambdas and never actually just go and build a plain lambda. And that's actually all they need. So Gillian, I've got a question for you. Um, have you actually tried loading a large uh, uh, machine learning model in the container image uh, lambda function? Uh, I've tried to load an image learning model of uh, uh, more than 400 megabytes 
and uh, uh, it, it is a good, a good approach if you don't need to uh, update the model and if you want to have some kind of immutable packaging and uh, it works well, it requires uh, a bit of time when uh, the engine is optimizing your container uh, because uh, once that you push, uh, the workflow specific specifically is that you push the image into uh, Amazon Container Registry and then you update the Lambda or you, you create the Lambda referring, pointing to that image in the container registry. And uh, when it happens, uh, the Lambda starts uh, pulling the image and optimizing the image. And that phase is dependent on the size of the, of the package of the, of the image. So my question for you guys in that case is, uh, have you measured the, the latency for reading that, uh, that model? It's not fast. <laughs> yeah, so I was talking to someone from Akea.com. Um, they have the exact use case that uh, Julian, you are thinking about, and uh, they are loaded, trying to load a, a machine image uh, that's a, a container image that's 1.5 gig. So they're trying to load a, mach a machine learning model that's 1.5 gig, and it took them four minutes to do that in 100, minutes, uh, 100 megabyte chunks, which means that if you want to load a 10 gig, like full 10 gig container image, uh, you won't have time. Like Lambda is going to time out before you can load it. So that's, so that's something that uh, they um I'm trying to figure out, is that just like something that they were running into or is just more of like a platform problem that they haven't figured out yet? And uh, the trade-off they, they, they made in the design for this uh, container image is that um, the container image itself uh, is, doesn't matter how big it is, it gets uh, broken up into small chunks into a sparse file system. Mm. So that's how they were able to limit the cold start penalties for loading container image. But then that means that if you actually need to load, lots of files or large files from your content image well good luck it's going to be pulling small chunks from the yeah. from whatever <laughs> it's from I, the far file system i want to talk to someone who gets 10 gig in their lambda i think if you manage to if you manage to get a 10 gig lambda and it's like successful and working well um, i'm also wondering yeah. how how does the how does the uh, increased uh, cores now that you can have uh, 10 gigabytes of memory in there like does that does that help at all with loading these larger things or are you still just limited by the network yeah, I do wonder that as well, because uh, even before the, the content, well, even before the 10 gig image, uh, sorry, uh, Lambda functions, uh, you also had the full CPU uh, when you were running the initialization as well. Mm. I don't know how well that apply, how, you know, whether or not that applies to the uh, container images uh, as well. Um, and also, I guess one thing that's also worth mentioning with container images is that, is that now you are responsible for the security and the update of and patching of the OS, right. uh, which is something that's like, 95% of us don't want to do. Right. And are we blurring, are we blurring the lines even more? I don't know, Farah, you, I mean, with what, what's going on with Stackery, I know you're working with a lot of customers um, that are building using SAM, but also CloudFormation and Serverless Framework and some of these other things. Are, are, is this something you're seeing though, where people are super excited about it because they think, hey, now I can just use containers on Lambda functions or, I mean, is it just getting too confusing? I think it's something that definitely excites people. I mean, I think what it does bring is, it, you know, it it uh, it provides um, uh, it provides the opportunity to like to be able to reuse um, you know images that you've already done, you know, that will validate, build, and deliver Lambda functions. You know that you know previously you would have to set up a whole tool chain for. Right. Um, I, you know, I think it also helps, you know, like it's helping people that you don't have to jump into serverless head first. So like, you know, it's, you can make these incremental, uh, you know, approaches to start starting to try to modernize your, 
uh, application, but also, you know, it's already fitting into, you see it's like really kind of fitting into like how people are already working. And so I think that we see Amazon really trying to figure out ways to, you know, integrate with tooling that's already there, you know, with, uh, with, with work workflows and, you know, mm -hmm. patterns that are already there. I mean, you see like Vintbridge has over 140 SaaS uh, integrations now, you know, with the Lambda extensions, you know, the, that API, uh, you know, I really just see that, it, you know, it's, a, it's uh, while I think it's confusing, I think there's a, there's a lot of confusion when you should use this or maybe when you use Fargate, how is this going to be built? Does this support, you know, does it, does it support, uh, support extensions? Does it support layers? So I think there's still a lot of questions, but I do think, you know, it's really moving into, you know, really trying to figure out like, how do you help, you know, um, you know, help developers with their current workflows and, you know, and how do you, uh, you know, help speed that along and make that a little more seamless. It doesn't work with layers. Uh, I've checked. <laughs> uh, it doesn't work with layers, unfortunately. It doesn't work with yeah. layers? It doesn't. No. Nope. Oh, not no. Okay. Well, it, well, I'm sure it will eventually, right? Probably not yeah. uh, because the layers is the file system is attaching to your the, the, the file system you already have. Uh, but oh, that's a good, if that file system a is a container, then... <laughs> we're we're going to touch it. <laughs> right. Well, I think the other thing that's important to remember here, too, is this is not, you know, using a container as a packaging format is not an AWS innovation. Um, IBM is already doing this. They're doing this at Azure. Um, so a lot of these other cloud providers have, have done this before. But it's certainly, you know, I, I think, as you said, Farah, it, it certainly does help people to sort of move in that direction. Um, but then I also fear what Jillian said, that maybe people just get stuck um, in that. But I, I think it's hard to fight gravity of the popularity of containers right now. Yeah, I'd, uh, and also I'd, I think uh, like 90, 95% of people just don't need to use containers. I mean, it's, it's, it's like all of these new features they're adding, they keep adding like uh, EFS and the extensions, all these other stuff. Right. They are they're medicines that's supposed to address specific symptoms and problems. Mm. Uh, it's not something that uh, you should just gobble up every day because it's, you know, <laughs> why not? <laughs> totally agree, totally agree. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, New Relic. Now, if you're building modern applications, then you've got an incredibly complex architecture, which means monitoring it takes a dozen different tools. And troubleshooting means jumping between data silos and dashboards. We all know the pain, and New Relic wants to change that. New Relic's designed everything you need in three products. Telemetry Data Platform holds all of your data from any source. Full Stack Observability gives you one place to analyze, visualize, and troubleshoot your whole stack. And Applied Intelligence gives you automated detection and incident intelligence. Best of all, they're bucking the industry's love of complicated pricing to keep things simple and predictable. No more host-based pricing and no constant upsells for more functionality. And they're giving you one user and 100 gigabytes per month completely free. Check it out at newrelic.com. Observability made simple. Um, all right, so let's move on. Uh, Sirhat, what was your um, what was your uh, reinvent announcement? So uh, one of my most favorite reinvent announcements uh, was one millisecond billing, uh, and I know a lot of people are really excited about this, and I can't stress the importance of this, you know, change enough. Uh, this is really important, and. Uh, when you look at it, AWS is probably going to lose a ton of money. Uh, probably they lost a ton of money overnight. But, you know, uh, and I know, you know, from my friends, uh, they save a lot of money overnight. And this shows how customer focused AWS is. And uh, probably, you know, it's not about just the money. 
because uh, now uh, because you know from our previous use cases we were running uh, we had to run uh, functions with more CPU and RAM and then uh, we are seeing like 100 milliseconds uh, execution time uh, but we are uh, we are uh, we are paying for 100 milliseconds now we don't have to so uh, that means we can run our functions faster and cheaper so that also means now uh, people you know are thinking about like a lambda, moving to lambda is going to cost them uh, much more uh, and they are going to lose some performance now they can choose the highest memory if they want to and they're going to pay just the amount of you know uh, execution time they spent so this uh, enables a lot of more use cases and because now uh, there are more use cases you can uh, run on lambda then uh, in many cases, you don't need another uh, container management service uh, or EC2 or whatever to be able to run your whole services because, you know, there are definitely cases where you uh, need to be uh, fast and then you think about, you start thinking about cold stars, you know, cost issues, a lot of other things. And then you start using containers, uh, EKS, whatever, along with AWS Lambda, then your whole operations become a mess, becomes a mess, right? So uh, that also means, you know, it's not just about uh, Lambdas getting cheaper. It's also about uh, enabling more use cases. I'm right. curious, by the yeah. way, if there is any case that it doesn't become cheaper. Like, is there any mathematical behind this thi thing that I know it will get uh, more expensive? Maybe only if you move more workloads on there. I mean, I think one of the things that I noticed with the one millisecond billing is it it sounds really great in theory, and I am a huge fan of it. I actually, uh, I think when we were, I think when we were out at AWS maybe two years ago, I said, could you make it maybe a fifty millisecond? Like even that would be better than the uh, than the hundred millisecond. Um, and they went all the way down to one millisecond, which was great. Um, but you do pay an invocation cost, right? So even if your lambda function is only running for ten milliseconds, you are paying that invocation cost. And so I wonder, you know, if you're invo if you're invoking more functions because now you don't have to worry about maybe trying to squeeze multiple operations into a single function if that was how you're trying to do some sort of optimization, um, that if you're calling more functions that you are still maybe paying a little bit more because of those invocation costs. I guess you could, yeah. I guess if you were doing batching before and now you're just doing one record at a time, you right. end up paying more for, uh, more for that 20 cents per million request as opposed to the whatever dot, 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 small amount for millisecond uh, filling. <laughs> And I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could just turn your couch over and find some change that'll pay for that bill, anyways, because it is it is so incredibly yeah. low. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think the I think it's a I think for a lot of different things there. Um, you know, the one millisecond for me is if you're doing some of those operations where maybe you're polling uh, or you need to call a, an API, for example, um, being able to call an API and having to pay an extra, you know, maybe it takes 34 milliseconds to call the API, having to pay that extra, you know, whatever it is, 66 milliseconds. It seems like an excessive amount of time um, when you don't need to. And if you do that millions and millions of times, it does start to add up. I do think that uh, I guess my worry for the millisecond, millisecond billing is more that now there's more excuse for people to prematurely optimize because they want to mm. cut down 50 milliseconds of execution time uh, when, in fact, uh, over the course of a month, they're paying 0.02 cents for the whole thing. I mean, right. you're spending hundreds of dollars of engineering right. time on the on something you're never going to pay, not get, gonna get your money back. <laughs> um, right. So that's kind of more my 
concern about uh, this millisecond billing. Um, before, there's no point because uh, whatever you do, you're going to pay 100 milliseconds anyway. But right. now there's that argument. Yeah, we can save you some money. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sheen, I know over at Lego, um, you your team has been a fan of using sort of the not lambda lifts, but sort of like a sort of a fat lambda, I think, is, is how you've referred to them in the past. Um, you know, optimizing those because they're doing multiple synchronous things together. Um, have you seen a reduction in costs now that, you know, now that you're, you're, you're getting that one millisecond billing? Um, yes. I mean, things, things change. Uh, <clears throat> I was going to, um, uh, say actually, because, um, you know, I myself said that, and many people said, oh, with the, you know, a millisecond billing, the, you know, Lambda functions are going to become uh, single purpose, smaller and et cetera, et cetera. But, when you have team of engineers doing lambda functions, you know, all day, they don't really look at things that way. They just continue as 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 usual. I mean, uh, from the early days of uh, having the sort of the fat lambda or uh, lambda lift, I think that's changed. Now it's more like a you know uh, a linear and single purpose. But even then, these days when you write a lambda function, it's not just simply doing few things and uh, quitting. You have structured logging in place. You have a bunch of, you know, um, uh, the config things getting loaded, a bunch of things read from parameter store, and you have layers and this and that. So already there are so much on top of, you know, a simple Lambda function. So that's the other side of this argument. Yes, it does, you know, benefit, but I don't think engineers are looking at that way uh, in their day-to-day, -day, you know, uh, running or developing lambda functions in my opinion right and i think actually what what uh, yen said too about prematurely optimizing I, yeah. I think most developers aren't thinking about costs still even as we move to the serverless world i mean people uh, are just kind of building their applications and when it comes to speed like maybe getting the latency down and things like that those are decisions they'll make but saying you know well we want to shave you know eight cents off of our monthly lambda bill like i i think that that i think that's still outside of the uh you know the normal the normal view of of your average developer right now yeah the the counter to you know the optimizing premature optimi optimization is like uh, there's another thought now because it costs less why don't we you know up the ram a bit to get a bit more you know performance mm. so that means they will end up paying more yeah so it's always these two sides to this yeah, well, and I think the other thing too is that, um, like Alex Castleboni's um, optimizer um, tool, uh, <laughs> it just got a lot more complicated uh, because there's so many different, uh, so many different options. But uh, all right, any other thoughts on the one millisecond billing? Yeah, I'd just like to add to that actually, because our development teams are a bit weird, Jeremy. We do put um, a focus <laughs> on reading our billing data every week, more from an application understanding point of view, and to validate as things scale, the costing is still going to be in hand. So all of our teams get this every sprint as part of the Scrum process. So in the review, they look at the AWS bill and make decisions based off that. And for us, Lambda is never at the top of the list. So optimizing things like API gateway is probably a better use right. of time, although Lambda can be higher cost depending on your use case. That's good to know, Ben, because I think uh, I, 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 I can take that back to you know our teams. I think that's very important because often engineering teams, they never get to see um, the production, you know, uh, building or anything. That's something that's really useful. Yeah. Yeah. I think in practice, uh, I see most people spend more money on the things like API Gateway and CloudWatch 
CloudWatch and X-ray is uh, yeah. stuff that's well, maybe not X-ray, but uh, definitely CloudWatch and uh, anything related to CloudWatch is usually pretty high up in the in the list of things that cost a lot of money. Yeah. All right. Awesome. So, uh, all right. Let's go to Jillian. What was your uh, what was your favorite announcement? <laughs> well, um, there's lots of cool announcements, but um, step functions um, mm. are definitely my favorite serverless orchestrator. I uh, use them for lots of different things. And although Lambda is the duct tape that you can use to fix any problem, you can stick it between anything and get anything stuck together. I do like to see things simplifying. So seeing things like that synchronous express workflows, seeing things yes. like being able to automatically uh, straight from API gateway to a step function or um, straight to API gateway from a step functions. I don't know, you can get a nice circular uh thing going on there and call so so being able to not having to put lambda in between obviously you could have used a lambda to call api gateway from a step function but now if you can put it straight in best code is no code Mm. so being able to just really simplify what you're putting together simplify workflows make your applications much much easier and much less code and much less pieces i i think that's pretty cool Right. And as they always say, the, the worst, you know, the, the, I guess the, the, the most dangerous part of your application is the code that you write, right? Like everything else is sort of battle tested, um, is there. And, and that synchronous workflows ties in very nicely, I think, with the one millisecond billing, because now with the synchronous express, you can do that function composition and you can actually have several Lambda functions that run back to back to back to back as part of a synchronous workflow. Um, and, and now you're not paying hundred milliseconds every time, um, or that, you know, exorbitant, um, you know, transition fee that you do with uh, normal step functions. I think you're, you're going to have a much bigger problem if you do that with cold starts though, because uh, the idea of using synchronous express workflows is to attach them to the API gateway and stuff like that. Mm. And if they're, you know, if it's an API and that's user facing, you definitely don't want to have like five Lambda functions cold starting uh, one after another. That's not going to be great for your user experience. That's probably, that's probably true. I'm wondering though, um, you know, if it's, if it's one of those things where it's like regular, you know, regular Lambda functions, once you get them warmed up, um, you know, does it allow you to do certain things, but also, I mean, even if you have, I guess, oh, I guess it's, if it's happening behind the scenes asynchronously, then, you know, asynchronous wouldn't be that big of a deal. Um, but you know, if you potentially do need to have multiple things, multiple APIs called to, to bring back a, you know, a single response or something like that. I don't know. I think that if they can speed it up, they could be the solution to the function <laughs> composition problem. I do like to see what I like to see is they, they introduce some kind of a scripting language, uh, some kind of a VTL. Well, maybe not VTL because everyone hates VTL. Some kind of a templating thing where they can essentially just execute a script without it being uh, being a separate lambda function. So that will evo- uh, that will remove a lot of the, I guess, performance uh, like concerns that I would have. Uh, mm. I know, uh, like I said, you know, the code starts may not be that big an issue, but uh, it's it it does makes your worst case performance a lot worse when you've got them stacking up after one another because it's right. all on the same workflow. Yeah. It'd be great if it just warmed everything up at the start and knew all those lambdas were in the step function, just warmed <laughs> them up right away. Right. I mean, you could use the provision concurrency, but then the, that becomes uh, interesting <laughs> cost-wise and uh, that becomes another thing you've got you to worry right. about. 
and expensive. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I think that that's actually a good point, though. Like just this idea. I mean, maybe going back to you know, Sheen, what you were saying about the the fat lambda and some of these other things. Um, you know, with the single purpose function, I love single purpose functions. I think it makes a ton of sense. But then on the other side of things, if you do have you know multiple steps that have to happen, having those all run in a single lambda function sometimes makes a lot of sense too. Um, you know, so I, you know, I, I think AWS is pushing people towards individual lambda functions and. Look, having a Lambda function that does one simple thing is great because you can compose those, they can be reused and things like that. But without having a really, you know, without being really well coordinated with step functions and understanding how all that stuff works. And then on the other side, like, you know, like you said, Yen, like paying the, the penalty of cold starts, if that's not a solution that hopefully gets better over time. Um, so I guess maybe just, you know, a question for everybody. Um, you know, where, where are you? Are we, are we still, are we still on the, you know, fat Lambda if need be camp or have we all moved towards the uh, single purpose? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen two different approaches from people. On one side, you have people with, that are refraining from uh, serverless, refraining to embrace uh, managed services and whatsoever, and they tend to embrace fat Lambda or Lambda leads as much as they can. On mm -hmm. the other side, you have a lot of people that are enthusiastic from uh, the possibility to package very bunch small pieces of code uh, within a Lambda and they would like to Lambdalize everything. And uh, we are trying to have some difficulty in uh, tying the balance uh, in between them uh, because uh, my problem is not about uh, having a huge Lambda or having a fat Lambda, but is related to the fact that it uh, pushes the developer to adopt some kind of bad practices about, uh, okay, having just one one uh, crude service with everything inside and you package everything within the Lambda and maybe you just use three methods of that crude, but it's super simple to package everything within your Lambda and who cares about that? But when you go into production and you measure cold start, you are being uh, hitting hard in the head by, by the cold starts. And it's something about uh, related to the behavior of the developer. And I think I, I'm more shift, uh, shifted about uh, having smaller lambdas because encourages you to adopt uh, something, things like uh, good patterns and uh, good architectures. But mm. it's not, it's not a dogma. It's, some, it's more rather uh, than uh, something that I like more. Well, I'm curious to get your perspective, Ron. I mean, you're you're the one who's looking at these functions being run. Um, is it easier to observe a single purpose function where only one thing's happening or trying to, you know, parse through those uh, stack traces when you get errors on the Lambda lifts? It's some and some, you know, for the easier use cases for, you know, the uh, like uh, the simple exception that you're having. So, you know, having a monolithic Lambda is very easy to troubleshoot because all encompassing, you know, single location you can see everything from the beginning all the way to the end you know in a right. kind of a single node uh, but when uh, on the other side when it's getting complex when you're having pipelines of you know three four ten functions with different services different third parties and api calls uh, these problems tend to be more complex uh, and you know you you kind of want to see just an encapsulated problem like you know the call to stripe was erroneous or you know something in the payload was changed throughout the uh, course of, of time span. This this thing that you can't see in a monolithic because all the logic is internally. Uh, everything happens internally in a single function. There is no outbound call that says, 
okay, I analyzed some data, I'm passing it to the other service that's responsible to charge that specific user, but everything happens internally. So the upside to having my, more microservices approach or more event-driven and you know breaking the functions into smaller piece, pieces is that you're, if you're having the right tool, you will have greater visibility into what happens because you know that at this point, when you try to charge the user, the input was X and something was missing from uh, this specific input. Uh, unlike uh, monolithic. By the way, as, at AppSecond, we were having both cases. Uh, we're still stuck with some Flask uh, Zappa uh, function that is having, you know, kind of the our fat lambda. But except for that, you know, we got, I don't know, uh, 600, 700 functions, different services all try to be as small as possible. Uh, someday we will migrate our fat lambda. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are some limitations that uh, uh, within, uh, I guess, we things like uh, I find with Kinesis, uh, that's probably one of, well, Kinesis and DMDB streams, that's probably one place where I can't really quite follow uh, single responsibility uh, functions as much as I like, because mm. of the fact that you have to contend with constraints on how many subscribers you can have, and at the same time, there's no filtering, so you end up having to do a lot of filtering in your own code <laughs> if, you have, if you want to be uh, handling just one type of event when you've got like event bus that, that funnels everything to you in one right. stream. So I think besides that, I think most other cases I've found uh, single single purpose functions uh, has definitely been ideal. I've seen some clients uh, that's got fat functions. I, I tell you, like Rand said, uh, all the errors in this happening in one function. You have no idea yeah. what happened to going on. <laughs> lot of lot of console dot logs. Yeah, yeah. Everything's in that one log. <laughs> all the alerts, one function. Right. <laughs> Every yeah. single message. I, I agree with uh, Ran was saying because initially, uh, many teams when they start, they want to put everything together, cost, and so many things. But then, when it gets to production and you know, you know, running more, that's when the observability problem hits. They want to see what's going on. You know, that's when you know the reality hits, and they they wish you know. Everything was granular and uh, you know isolated, so get more visibility. And uh, yeah, that 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 is that is the case actually, because uh, you know when you, when you have a production environment, you you need to know what's going on, especially with all the different um, you know the features. Now we have all the destinations and uh, you know keeping track of errors and things like that. So yeah, that that's a, that's an important thing. Right. And I have some uh, some uh, anecdotal example from a Lucas example as well. We have got a client that had the, uh, this one API that's doing one endpoint is doing the service are rendering. Everything else is just a simple get and the put from DB CRUD stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, every single function, every single code is at one point five seconds because of the React uh, because of that one endpoint that <laughs> right. does the service yeah. are rendering. Uh, yeah. So that's where like you know that one function is easy, but then you end up paying the co-star for every single um, endpoint. Right. And I'm, I'm curious from your perspective too, Farah, because again, I know you're seeing a lot of, uh, you're working with a lot of companies who are doing this stuff. Is, is that something that you're seeing as well? Is there sort of a mix and match of the single purpose versus the, the Lambda lift slash fat Lambda people? And I don't want to fat Lambda shame anybody. I certainly don't want to do that. So, <laughs> but I mean, again, I, I, I use them sometimes too, but I'm just curious, Farah, what, what's, what's your, uh, what's your experience? Yeah, I think we definitely see a, a mix of both, but I think the goal, you know, for, you know, for our companies, you know, people want their environments to, you know, become more flexible, you know, and that's the whole goal of modernizing. And if you have a big fat Lambda, is is your architecture flexible? I might have to say that probably is not. So, you know, right. <laughs> you know, I think we really, you know, we really tried to, you know, work towards, you know, uh, I would say more single purpose functions, but definitely you see a combination of both. Awesome. 
Um, all right, so let's move on. Sheen, what was your uh, what was your exciting announcement from uh, reInvent 2020? Um, uh, there are a few things, but uh, one of my favorites is uh, with EventBridge. Now we can archive and replay uh, mm. events. And I'll tell you the reason why I like this, because um, EventBridge, uh, we, we started to adopt uh, EventBridge as soon as you know it, it came out. And then at two or three occasions in different use cases, when I spoke to teams to use EventBridge, there were, uh, you know, um, a resistance. The simple reason being, what happens if I lose an event? What mm -hmm. do I do? Especially when it comes to sort of the critical events that uh, say carries uh, customer order data or uh, payments details and things like that. So in such scenarios, situations, you, you can't, you know, um, just go without any uh, proof. So I had to back off in those situations and uh, let uh, use UN bridge in other scenarios. But with the archiving replay mechanism, we get that much of, you know, sort of a confidence that, okay, so you have your, you know, events here. If something gone wrong or if you're, you know, the, the consumer or the target Lambda, for example, had issues, it gives us the flexibility to replay those uh, events um, as, as, as and when we need. So that's, that's an important thing uh, which was missing um, until, uh, until the announcement. Um, now, I wouldn't say I, ha I had a brief look at uh, the archive and replay uh, setup. It's, it's not completely clear to someone who is coming in because uh, you may end up replaying, uh, hitting all the targets and you need to be careful. Uh, you are archiving for that particular pattern or, uh, you know, that rule that you have. Otherwise, it's not going to make a you know, much sense. And also the other important thing many people miss is that when you replay the event, the event comes with an extra attribute to say that, oh, I am a replay event or something like that. So that again is something important to um, look into when we, when we you know, build our, um, you know, the, the patterns uh, to filter and, uh, you know, the rules and things like that. So, yeah, so that that's why this is, you know, kind of one of my, you know, uh, favorites, especially when it comes to EventBridge. Yeah, and I was I was one of a very early adopter of EventBridge, and I remember like the first thing I did was you create a rule that captures every event, and you just send that somewhere so that you have that backup. Yeah. Um, and so adding this in, actually, I mean, it seems it probably seems like a relatively small thing, but it really does help. Um, and then, like you said, the ability for you to have that little extra flag in there, flag in there that says it's a replay event, um, that's super helpful because if you're building in item potency and some of these other things that you have to do yeah. when you maybe reprocess an event that already uh, happened, um, you know, that's a, that's a, it's a really good thing to have. Now, Ben, I know you're a huge fan of EventBridge as well. Um, what are your thoughts on, on those new capabilities? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're using EventBridge on nearly all of our projects these days. And actually just a couple of days ago, um, an article went live on the AWS Game Tech blog, which talks about our use of EventBridge in the esports space. And that's GamerCraft as a company. So feel free to look at the use case. Archiving is something we've been doing ourselves for a while. So it's great to get that just done out of the box. And especially as a lot of our clients are in the regulated space, it's great to have things like archive history out of the box as well, as we're starting right. to get things like last year, um, the encryption at rest support, these can start to be used in more regulated industries. Replay is also great. And just before reInvent, the introduction of retry policies right. and dead letter queues means we're getting a lot more robustness straight out the box. We're already using it on a lot of our projects. Um, and 
not something I'm particularly using it for, but if you're using a, um, an event source based architecture, obviously archive and replay are going to be crucial parts for you. Yeah. I mean, and also the, the thing that is getting more and more popular with um, just the way people are building their applications is splitting up accounts. So you have maybe a microservice, you know, a separate account for each microservice, for example, and you might have a separate account for each microservice and then each stage of that microservice and, and things like that. So cross communication between accounts with EventBridge um, is kind of a complicated thing. I don't know if anybody watched uh, Stephen uh, Leedig's uh, EventBridge talk during reInvent, but really, really interesting. And he just recently released uh, some of those patterns on a GitHub repository too. But um, just thoughts on that. I mean, people who have had experience with this, um, you know, it's kind of clunky right now, but hopefully getting better. It's gotten a lot better already. I mean, there's still some problems with it, uh, like the fact that it still only delivers to the default bus on the destination account and stuff like that. Uh, but at least you can now use the resource policies to control uh, which account can access so that you don't have to like make a change on both the the, 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 the account where the, the, the bus is as well as the account where the, the, right. the destination is. Now you can just do everything uh, from the destination account waiting to add a new subscriber. So that was a quite a nice change and make things a lot easier for people that are doing that multi-account pattern. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, one thing, I think Shin, you mentioned that you talked about the archive and replay. Uh, one thing that was missing is that when you replay, the gifts just dumps as much of the event to you as quickly as they can. <laughs> they don't they don't respect the, the, the event ordering. So I was talking to the guys at the um, at Maham, uh, this uh, big Swedish um, grocery shopping um, uh, company. They, uh, so they, they built some tooling around the uh, event bridge and they actually built uh, this event bridge YouTube to, uh, CLI tool they've got and that they implemented sort of um, respecting the timestamp so that uh, you give them the, in the right, uh, at the right time, as opposed to just, here you go, here's a million events, boom. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're looking, we're looking at event bridge. Um, Definitely very interested in it, in starting to use it more and more. But so as I'll ask the people who are using it, so how do you feel about sort of the observability? Um, that does seem to be a little bit lacking in the event bridge. You're logging, even with the new archive, I don't know if you can really use it to query and find out what's happening. And, and if events haven't been picked up by any rules, um, you don't really know that they haven't. If we only had someone here who knew about observability. Yeah. So oh, wait, we, we do go at support for uh, EventBridge a while back, and I think uh, I don't know if Absigon has support for it now. Uh, okay. So you, uh, with Lumigo, you can definitely just uh, go to the explore page and then just uh, query any data that uh, Lumigo captures for you, including stuff that uh, traverses through EventBridge, and you can see, uh, you know, your trace goes through EventBridge Lambda, EventBridge Lambda, and so on. Uh, whereas uh, X-rays doesn't, doesn't support it yet. So I think uh, yeah, Lumigo, Absigon, and, and I want to say Sandra as well. Sahad, Sandra has it as well. Correct yeah. Me if it, yeah, cool. So yeah, all this uh, sort of serverless focus, the observability tools that they all added support for EventBridge a while back. And if we go just back to the multi-account use case, we've been doing that on a lot of our projects. So we have, you know, one AWS account per service and then one account per environment, which is great from a sort of blast radius security point of view. We also have clients who have legacy architectures and actually, just last week, I found myself writing some .NET in a legacy system, which I wouldn't invite you to do. But this was then sending <laughs> events to EventBridge in the new system. And that was a cross-account EventBridge, which allows us to do a really nice sort of strangler pattern style migration to serverless through a progressive sort of minimum viable migration style, um, rather than a big flip the switch style migration. Uh, ben, um, 
question about this uh, <clears throat> cross-account event sharing. When I looked at a while ago, one thing I didn't quite like is I lose the control of transforming what I sent to the other account. It was kind of forcing me to send the original event to the other account, which is not going to work in every you know scenario where the source source of the event account needs to control what it provides to the other account. Is that still the case? Do you do you you know see issues around this? Yeah, I think it's still the case. And in our use case, it's really two trusted systems. So we didn't really have to think too much about limiting data that was coming from the events. Um, from a legacy system point of view, sending data to other AWS accounts, maybe we could reduce sort of the cost of doing that by reducing the data loads. But yeah, if it's untrusted systems, we still have a sort of issue around how we can try and filter the data at source rather than in the target AWS account. Okay. Shin, I don't, Shin uh, why not? Uh, so in that case, why not just uh, do the transformation at the destination account between EventBridge and uh, whatever eventual processing thing you've got? Because between, you can see the transformation there, right? You mean between the two event buses, or no, not between the two event buses, but uh, your your event bus goes from the, the 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 central account to the microservice account, and then you're going to process it. So can yeah. you not just do the transformation? there as opposed to between the buses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, could do that. Yeah, yeah. And my, my point was, you know, even the, the, the point from the source event when it goes out, that's where I would prefer to have uh, the, the, you know, the control. Why is that? Say if, if you are sending uh, payments data from, you know, a, you know a service that uh, captures the you know the payment details and tokens and things like that i may have so many you know pii or you know data that you want to send to uh, uh, another account that is dealing with uh, you know order or something else so the, the the there are certain scenarios where it depends again even if, if it's within the same department organization it's fine if it's going to a different department or a different organization then um, it can become a you know an issue mm. exposing okay. everything from the original event. Okay, right. Uh, Ron, do you have any uh, any other thoughts on the observability of uh, EventBridge? Like you know, if uh, you gotta have this because uh, if you're using it as an event hub to all your all of your services, you do have to need something in place. Otherwise, it will go chaotic. Uh, you know, especially if you're using EventBridge, it means that your system is a definite uh, you know microservices oriented. Uh, so either make sure you're following message IDs uh, and what happened to them or choose a solution off the shelf. Uh, otherwise, it will get chaotic very fast. Definitely. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. Epsigon enables teams to instantly simplify, visualize, and understand what's happening with their complex microservice architectures. With their comprehensive, lightweight auto instrumentation, users are able to eliminate the gaps in data and manual work associated with other APM solutions, providing significant reduction in issue detection, troubleshooting, and resolution times. Epsigon aggregates and correlates data from all the third-party tools you love, delivering a single pane of glass for understanding serverless, containers, Kubernetes, and more. Engineers now know when something is wrong and can immediately trace issues to root cause before they affect production. Increase development efficiency and reduce application downtime with Epsigon. As a special for Serverless Chats listeners, if you try out Epsigon and connect your first trace today, they'll hook you up with one of their awesome t-shirts. 
Check it out at epsagon.com slash serverless chats. All right, so let's go on. Let's move on to uh, to your favorite announcement, Ron. And I know that this wasn't necessarily, I don't think this was announced at reInvent, but it was pre-reInvent, but I think uh, it had a major impact on what you do. Yeah, so it's the uh, Lambda log extensions. Obviously, I like almost all, uh, all announcements, but uh, the one that I really uh, cared about was the Lambda log extensions that you're right, was uh, pre-invent maybe a week or two uh, before reInvent uh, this time. Uh, basically, what they did, uh, you know, uh, Earlier this year, it's to provide the uh, Lambda extensions with uh, the runtime. Uh, so you can provide your own uh, runtime and your own set of extensions on top of Lambda functions, uh, the, uh, you know, the runtime API, um, and you know, do some more things while your Lambda is running and before your Lambda is running and after your Lambda is running. Now, uh, the third part of it, if I'm looking at the extensions API, runtime API, the third thing is the logs API. Uh, as we all know, in order to get a good service from most of the solutions out there that are doing either uh, monitoring security, observability, or you know any other thing to Lambda, they require some log analysis. Uh, they you know rely on uh, ingesting logs and you know uh, comprehend them uh, in order to generate meaningful insights. Um, so far, right before we invent, or actually up to uh, September or October, uh, there was just one destination for CloudWatch logs. Means that you know it was kind of competition between uh, how do we solve for a customer having several solutions uh, to listen uh, for these logs. Now, uh, for reInvent, uh, I do have like a uh, kind of a question to everyone. Uh, for reInvent, they announced the Logs API that allows me to choose a custom destination to uh, ship uh, or query or get or analyze these logs, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, it's amazing, but I think it was kind of one month later uh, than, uh, than needed because around the end of September, uh, CloudWatch, uh, the CloudWatch team, uh, the part of the Logs team announced two uh, destinations Ooh. exactly <laughs> <Two destinations. laughs> like exactly what we needed for so long time so it feels like it's kind of you know um, I can still use the old or traditional way of streaming logs with the built-in integrations by the way that CloudWatch uh, destinations got to Kinesis or to S3 or to a Lambda function which makes uh, good sense or start to use the uh, logs API so again this is a great uh, extension. This is a great uh, capability, uh, but it seems that somebody somewhere else uh, solved this problem for us, at least for the meantime. You know, at some day it will be, uh, hey, we need three, we need four, we need five. So the Lambda extensions uh, for logs is, uh, I want to say, unlimited or at least not limited by a small number. Um, but that's that's my take on this one. Uh, you are limited to five extensions per function. Um, yeah. There's also other things to keep in mind by extensions as well, is that it runs at the same time as your function invocation. You don't have that background processing time after the customers, after your Lambda function code is finished running, which means that in practice, what people end, end up doing for the extension is uh, they're doing that sort of agent model whereby they're buffering things and then sending them in batches. Otherwise, uh, you're gonna have to add delay to every single function invocation at the end, and there's no trigger, there's no signal for you to know when the Custom when the Lambda function code has finished, so you don't actually know when in your extension code you can actually save to say, okay, invocation is finished. I'm going to spend what 10 milliseconds to send the logs to whatever uh, destination, which means that you have this uh, like weird batching until the next invocation, which means in cases whereby there's like a gap of idle time between invocations on the worker, 
that means your logs is not going to go anywhere until either there's an invocation or the, the work itself gets garbage collected. And this gets worse when it comes to provision concurrency because guess what? That thing is going to be sitting there for a long time before it gets garbage collected mm -hmm. after eight hours, which means that if you are running provision concurrency, there's a chance you're not going to see your logs for a very long time uh, unless there's a regular uh, invocations on those provisions concurrency. So it's, it's it, I, I agree. When you say step. a long time, how, when you say a long time, I'm curious how long do you mean by that? Like, what's the time frame that people could expect uh, for that? Up to eight hours. So a, a Lambda worker has got a lease for up to eight hours, which means uh, for for provision concurrency, that gets kept around uh, from the moment it's created. If there's one invocation at the start, okay, the, the logs were batched, uh, got buffered in the buffering extension. Nothing happens for eight hours. So you're going to see the logs at the end of the, of the lifetime of that worker when it gets garbage collected, because that's the time when the extension gets a, gets, gets a signal that Lambda function is terminated, it's shut down. So you can now clean up. And uh, as part of the cleanup, you can then send the logs to uh, whatever third party service you're using, uh, which means you're going to just get like, weird things that where, okay, where's my logs? I don't see it for like 10 minutes. Uh, because there's nothing, there's no activity on those uh, provision concurrency. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you're probably so, the one that read all 100% of the fine print of serverless. <laughs> Anything that is written on AWS, you know exactly how many docs. hours there are for logs to stream <laughs> from a provision concurrent Lambda. Uh, I had to, I had, as part of the release, I had to, I had to read, uh, read into a lot of the uh, extensions uh, uh, documentation to figure out how it works and had some chat with the Santiago, the guy that, uh, one of the, the, the guys that runs the team uh, that work on that feature. So uh, I probably learned a bit more, too much about how that works than I, than I should. <laughs> Hopefully it's one of those things where most people don't need to know how that works. They, they just you know use Epsigon yeah. or Lumigo or Thunder or something and they just plug it in. But um, I have seen some people doing real-time log streaming with that, especially in like a development environment, um, which is really cool. I always looked at the CloudWatch, sort of the, the uh, you know, attaching listeners to your CloudWatch logs uh, as sort of a lazy logging type thing, because it's always delayed and it you know always takes extra time so um, I think if you need real-time logs you know that that extensions API certainly gets you much closer than you were before um, but yeah I hadn't heard about that that buffering problem of logs getting stuck in there that's uh, that's kind of interesting yeah I would say that you know I know that uh, you have the problem of you know continuously loading logs from cloudless like you try to refresh refresh and it seems to get uh, longer than expected I do say that when you're subscribing logs it comes much earlier like uh, if you're doing like a real-time processing it will come faster than you'll see that on the cloudwatch uh, console itself so that's oh, one thing okay. but he, but yeah the uh, when you're having the log extension API, it's uh, real time. I would say in a matter of uh, you know milliseconds or less. It's more for I would say uh, uh, real time analysis or gathering or batching of data. You might want to batch or gather some data, reduce or downsample or do something meaningful, and then just send instead mm -hmm. of all of the logs, just send you know the metrics out of these logs or alert when you know a fight. Five window batch time uh, seem to have some anomalous uh, error. And again, it's a matter of, uh, you know, it's like if you can wait probably uh, one second to get your log, uh, that's probably an overkill. But if you're doing something that requires tons of data or something that is more real time, um, that's probably the case for it. 
So yeah. generally, that's the one problem that uh, does make it really difficult to do actually uh, what you're talking about uh, streaming, just because uh, in your extension code, you're polling the, the log API, uh, sorry, the registering for events uh, from mm -hmm. the uh, Lambda logs API, uh, but you don't have the event for to tell you when the function invocation is finished, as in the uh -huh. your actual module code has finished. So you don't know when it's actually safe for you to terminate, to stop your, uh, your extension, because it's got the same sort of similar sort of polling model to custom extensions. So cut, uh, cut some runtime where mm -hmm. you run your extensions so when the invocation starts and then you have to say when you're ready to yield and give up. So if you're not careful, you end up just you know, running for longer. The function finished here, but your extension is still running. So you end up causing extra delays to the Lambda invocation time itself. Interesting. One thing we actually did to get the logs in real time for development environments, we did this earlier, actually last year, um, we created our own custom runtime of Node.js. This is before the extension support came out. And then we overrode console.log, created an <laughs> API gateway WebSocket directly to the developer's computer. And then we could shoot console logs directly to the developer's computer before the function finished executing and in sort of almost real time. So if you do want to get direct feedback in your development environment, you could do this. I wouldn't suggest you do this in production. And it was a bit of a hassle to set up, but it's definitely an option. I think, um... <laughs> so had that didn't you guys uh, Thunder, didn't you guys had uh, something a long time ago uh, that uh, let you do real time uh, debugging uh, against the node runtime essentially doing something similar you are pushing uh, you're, you're running like a node uh, debugger at uh, on lambda and then you're pushing events to uh, to to someone's IDE who's listening to that uh, to, to that endpoint I know Sarkan was doing some crazy stuff right but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I don't know the details I don't want to know the details <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, let's just hope that somebody figures it out and it works. Um, all right, let's move on. So, uh, Farah, what was, uh, you got a favorite announcement? Or I just all that, I would say, I don't know that I, I, so I watched a lot of customer stories, uh, you know, for, for at Stackery, I was writing about, you know, like companies doing serverless success. Um, and what like really excites me, you know, is like, as if you're like starting a product, you know, or company today, you, you literally have like instant access to the compute power that enterprises, you know, uh, are using, you know, to have security performance that will get you the scaling that you need. Um, but, you know, you see, I saw all these like uh, talks that, you know, are talking about dealing with, you know, hundreds of, you know, 100 terabytes of data that they need to, you know, import and then uh, like these are imported or uploaded somehow. And so I really just feel like, you know, just like watching all these, you really see like the, like the raw power of, you know, AWS. I know there's like simply like no way that people could have done these types of things, uh, mm -hmm. you know, prior to, um, you know, prior to utilizing the cloud without, you know, spinning, you know, I don't, I don't know how much money, but it, it, it'd be astronomical. So right. uh, those types of things, I think, are just really, really exciting. And, you know, at a time where I felt like, you know, I felt pretty stagnant. A lot of us, you know, we're not traveling. We're kind of stuck, you know, to really see that innovation is still happening. And actually, it's even, you know, it's moving faster. And, you know, people in the times of like COVID, you know, companies were, were able to scale and respond you know, to their different needs. You know, we saw stories, like I saw a lot of stories from Liberty Mutual, Sheen, and your uh, thoughts from Lego, but there was tons of them, you know, from like Volkswagen to um, like Autodesk. Um, it, it was just, all of that was like pretty, you know, I guess I would say pretty powerful and incredible. Um, you know, this kind of didn't make me feel so stagnant. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think that's a I think that the idea of the number of people that have been able to um, build companies in the cloud using serverless technology without having to spin up, 
you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment to do things. I mean, especially even just some of the machine learning stuff that is getting baked in. I mean, I know uh, I was at a small startup before and, and we were barely doing anything in terms of we were a small customer of AWS. And I think our bill every month was like $18,000. And if that and this was what, seven or eight years ago, if, if we had had, um, you know, if we had serverless at the time, our bill probably would have been $2,000 a month, right? And so what else could you have done? Um, and it also means what else can someone else do? What can a single developer do or a small development team? Um, or someone who's just interested in maybe experimenting with something? I mean, it opens up a lot of doors. It definitely does. I mean, we're seeing that with startups. And in fact, soon I hope to have a couple of case studies out about this, but you really just seeing, you know, like teams and the, the power that they have and the speed and how that extends their runway. And, you know, they, right. you know, they're, they're delivering on their roadmap a lot sooner, you know, and just like what that feels like, you know, it, and that to me is just like, it's really exciting because, you know, I feel like, right, you know, we all need something to kind of hold on to right now to, you know, get us to try to keep us, you know, keep us moving and, you know, engaged in what we're doing. And so uh, those types of things really help me. Yeah, I think that's an important point that uh, Farah mentioned that uh, the, the startups, they don't just, uh, you know, become successful simply because of the cost factor. I mean, I recently wrote a blog post all the you know the sort of the flexibility and the the, the the tooling that we you know get for right. free or you know for for nothing that allows us to move fast that's mm -hmm. an important thing i i watch uh, you know quite a few of these sort of uh, use use real use cases at reinvent it amazes me the different uses cases and the the way they use serverless you know uh, the one I liked was uh, the Scottish uh, Land Registry. They moved oh, tons and tons of, you know, uh, uh, records of the real documents with the S3 and, uh, you know, serverless. Amazing, amazing mm. stuff. And there was another thing which I never thought. I was watching the um, DynamoDB related, uh, you know, the talk from uh, uh, this famous uh, entertainment company. Uh, Anyway, so th their approach is to keep it uh, on demand when they launch a product because they don't know the, you know, the volume of traffic and the capacity. Then once they study the, you know, their traffic pattern, then they set to the, you know, sort of the provisioned uh, capacity mode, which I never, you know, really uh, thought because usually you, you know, provision a table and that says you're done. You never right. go back and, you know, change this. So amazing stories and, uh, you know, really cool uh, tips for, you know, to, to take take home. Right. And I think that's actually, that's a good point you make too about sort of setting the provisioned, um, you know, throughput for, for DynamoDB. There are actually several services where, it doesn't always have to be on demand, right? There's a few things where, I mean, whether it's provision currency for Lambda or obviously uh, provision throughput, um, where you can set certain, you know, sort of like baseline uh, where you want to be. And there's always a lot of flexibility in that. So if it goes above it, it's still going to scale, whatever. But you can really optimize your costs as well. So even in those situations yeah. where you might say, well, if it's all on demand, it's going to be really expensive. And I have like a really flat sort of um, pricing model. There are ways to do that, including um, savings plans for uh, Lambda. So even if you are using Lambda, you know, quite a bit and it's not as spiky of workload, you can still find savings in there. Um, you know, there, there's you just got to do a little bit of digging, but uh, it's possible. Yeah, it was Disney, actually. Uh, the Dynamo DB. Disney. Talk oh, yeah. Was. Disney Plus. Right. Yes. Yeah. That was a good talk. That was a good yeah, talk. It was. Yeah. They made a, they made the cost anomaly detection service. It went GA 
during reInvent mm. and I believe it's free. So you should definitely turn it on because it saved me right after reInvent because I went in and started turning things on and trying things out. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> How many people have left a provision a table on. that they're wondering why? <laughs> why am I paying this money for a provision table? <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So um, I want to finish up with you, Ben. So we already talked about um, EventBridge, which I know is a big thing for you. But was there anything else at reInvent that uh, really stuck out for you? Sure. Yeah. Well, EventBridge was the highlight for me. But just taking a second to think what my sort of second topic would be. I'm actually working at the minute on a big serverless data lake project where we have data going into an S3 data lake and then we're then querying that with Athena and visualizing it in QuickSight for business intelligence. Mm. And that's going really well. But what we need to do now is more real-time insights. Um, and we were previously doing this with some stuff going into Dynamo and querying off of that. Um, but what came out at reInvent and it hasn't been probably the most talked about feature is the tumbling window support for Lambda. Yes. So previously, let's say we had data in a DynamoDB table, which was then... Uh, had a DynamoDB stream into Kinesis, we could do some processing on that data, but we couldn't really build aggregate statistics based off previous data. With this support, we can now have the stream of data coming into Kinesis and for each sort of batch of data, we can have as one of the inputs, the state of the output of the previous batch of computation. Right. So we could, for instance, uh, calculate the day's sales by having the output of the previous batch and then keep adding on to that. We had a slightly different use case and it's a little bit more complicated, um, but this has really helped us have real-time data coming visualized to the user. So Ben, uh, could you not do that with uh, Kinesis uh, um, Analytics before, or is that not possible? Yeah, so Kinesis Analytics is definitely sort of the other way to do it. And Kinesis Analytics actually had some new stuff added in reInvents, I think. When we tried to do it, we found Kinesis Analytics a little bit restricted because we weren't just doing a simple summation. We needed a bit more complex state coming from our previous execution. But yeah, there might be a way to do it with Kinesis Analytics. It was the tumbling okay. window support was a little bit more flexible for our use case. Okay, sure. Yeah, and there was a couple of other, I mean, besides tumbling windows, there were custom checkpoints um, that were added in, um, the SQS batch windows, again, just all different ways that you can have a little bit more control over how you're processing your data. Uh, I think that was I think that was a big win, and I, I talked to um, a Jay Nyer, uh, you know, right after reInvent, and kind of went through some of these different things. And uh, it seems to be the goal of AWS to basically take all these little objections of like, well, I can't, or I pro this is, you know, I don't have enough control over this, or I don't have enough control over that, or whatever, and just keep adding those in and adding those in. And then I think that goes back to your point, Jillian, where it's like eventually, you know, it's just going to be a lot of configuration and maybe no code at all. I think the SQS batch window scares me a little bit, though. <laughs> <laughs> why is that? Because no, why, the, why is that? Because the right dealing with partial failures is already kind of tricky, mm -hmm. and uh, you don't want to deal with ten thousand partial failures. Yeah, yeah. How are you gonna? Okay, imagine you got a, ten, a batch of ten thousand, uh, two record failed. How do you and uh, how do you then know which ones to delete yourself and which ones you don't, and let it right. retry? And if you don't, then uh, you have to do idempotency, make sure it's done right. Uh, and how do you track 9,998 <laughs> records being processed previously and two didn't? Uh, right, right. <laughs> that, that's interesting because someone asked me the same question. I mean, not 100,000, uh, sorry, 10,000, <laughs> but even to 50 messages batch, mm -hmm. they post the same question. You know what I did? I pointed uh, that person to your... Uh, recommendation you talk about Yan to you know uh, manually kind of do the delete so that when it fails you won't get everything you know sort of 
reprocess. And that's that's why I like the other one that uh, what is it called? Custom uh, the Custom checkpoints. checkpoints. Yeah, Checkpoint, right. yeah. yeah, that 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 helps so that you don't kind of you know get into this mess. Just yeah, I mean, that. right, because the bisecting of batches was great, but then you would still end up reprocessing yeah. a bunch of things. Yeah. Now you can just yeah. say if it fails at this point, I'm going to start again exactly. at that point. So yeah, yeah, that's a it's a pretty good thing. So all right, anyone else have any other you know thoughts or uh, you know big things that happened at reinvent? Something you want to share? The floor is the floor is yours. Luca. Yeah, I think I think that we had great announcement uh, shifting machine learning more towards DevOps uh, because mm. uh, AWS announced the SageMaker pipelines, uh, which is great to manage uh, machine learning model uh, shifting from development to production, and it's something that was missed, and it's something that is filling the gap between data scientist and developer. I was having a very nice discussion with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and he told me this means that data scientists are not more, not anymore uh, wizard with magical books uh, full of spells, but they are becoming <laughs> engineers and they are bringing things into production. And right. situation pipelines goes in that direction. Yeah. Now, I think machine learning, uh, there were a lot of announcements with machine learning. I wish we had more time. Um, we've already been talking for a while. Um, I try to stay away from machine learning, but it's maybe just because I watched <laughs> The Terminator too many times when I was a kid, and I'm just very nervous of, of Skynet uh, becoming self-aware. Anyways, let's leave it there. Everyone, thank you so much. Sheen, Sir, Hat, Jillian, uh, Yen, Ron, Farah, Ben, and Luca. Uh, this has been absolutely amazing. Nine people may have been too much. I don't know. We might have to cut it down next time, but um, I appreciate all your insights. I am going to put in the show notes links to um, Twitter and information on all of these amazing people that were on the show today. Uh, thank you for watching. Thank you all for participating. Um, and we will uh, we will see you next time. Thanks, Thanks everyone. Bye. Thank, thank you. you very much. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Yen Trey, Sirhat John, Luca Bianchi, Farah Campbell, Ron Ribbonzat, Ben Ellerby, Sheen Brizzles, and Jillian Armstrong for being my guests, and to our sponsors, New Relic and Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 86. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.